0: Amen. Our sermon passage this morning comes from Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 38. Hear the word of the Lord. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first, appear, who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed." And there was a prophetess, Anna, and the daughter of Phanuel and the tribe of Asher. And she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray. Merciful Father, we give you thanks for your word, which you promised does not return void. We pray that you would use your word by the power of your spirit to speak to us this morning. Help us to be people who wait with all hope. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. You know, as we come upon Christmas Day, one of the hardest parts, at least for me as I was a child, I imagine for children in the room, it's the same, is is waiting, right? Your parents begin to wrap presents. They put them under the tree. You got to look at them all the time, and yet, uh, you know, you can't open them yet. And maybe when your parents aren't looking, you grab it and you shake it and you try to listen and see what, what it is. Don't do that. You're not supposed to do that. But I know you do. And, uh, and, you know, you're trying to figure out. Waiting is hard, right? The anticipation. You want to know what is in that present. And you've got to wait all month to be able to actually unwrap it. And then, you know, Christmas Eve is so hard to sleep because all you want to do is get that thing, get that present. And so... Christmas Eve comes and, you, and it's the sleepless night and then as soon as like you, you see a hint of sun, you jump on your parents' bed and you say, you know, wake up, I want to open my presents, right? I, the waiting's over, I've waited long enough, let me, let me open that present. And you know, one of the things we learn is that actually all of life, you could say, is couched in waiting. We're always waiting for something. Uh... You wait to get out of school, and then you, I just couldn't, remember when I was a kid, I just couldn't wait to be done with high school. Finally, I could be free. I could get out into the real world. And then once you start college, I just can't wait to be done with that next schooling thing. And this, oh, I can't wait till I have a job. Oh, I can't wait till I have children, have, have a spouse. You know, all these things in our life we wait for. And we're just kind of bouncing from waiting from one thing to the next thing to the next thing. Our life is couched in waiting. All of life is waiting for us. You know, the question that's asked of us is, what are you waiting for? What is the hope in your waiting? Now imagine all that waiting, waiting for something to happen, not just in your own lifetime, right? Like most of the things that we wait for actually we we get to taste at least a little bit of in this lifetime. But imagine you're waiting for something, and the the waiting actually carries over generations. It's like you know, waiting for the Mariners to make the playoffs again. I mean, it's a low blow. Sorry, Mariners fans. Uh, but you know, from the from our sermon last week, right? From the time when Babylon took over Jerusalem, it's been about almost six hundred years to the day that we're talking about this morning. So the Israelites know something about waiting. Many, even though they've actually gone back to the land and they've actually rebuilt the temple. There's still no king that sits on their throne. All those promises that, ha- that were given to them by Isaiah and Jeremiah, they still have not yet been fulfilled. Many generations have come and gone, waiting for the hope of redemption, only not to see it. Nations have risen and fallen in that time. And although they've returned to land, they are still an oppressed people. And now, in the time of Jesus here, Rome rules over them. And If you can imagine being an Israelite, passing on this this thing from generation to generation, you can imagine it's probably hard to still believe, to still believe that one is going to come that's going to sit on the throne of David. It's it's almost like a family legend that just gets passed on, and there's a few of the crazy ones that still believe it, right? And uh, a, a legend that only few in the family believe, and it's and it's hard to blame them, even. In terms of like God speaking to the people. From the end of the Old Testament. Malachi is the last prophet we have before the the writing of the New Testament. It's been about 450 years. 450 years of, of silence. Seemingly silence from God. It's hard to blame them. And yet, what do we find in the temple this morning? After waiting generations. Even at the end of their own lives. We find two people that have not lost hope. Two people that have held on to the hope that one day the advent of the Messiah would happen. A hope that says, despite the silence that I hear, despite the long waiting, the Messiah is going to come. And not only would he come, but they believe that they would actually see him. Well, how could they still have this kind of hope? How could they still wait with hope after all that? We have a hard time waiting five minutes in a line, and yet they're waiting their entire lives after 600 years. How can they do that? because of what they believed would happen when he came. Because of how good of a Messiah that he is, that he actually would come and do the thing that he said he would, he would restore all things. And here in this story, we find this beautiful moment where all their waiting is finally over. I don't know what that thing is that you're waiting for, but imagine something you've been waiting for your whole life. Maybe it seems impossible. Maybe it's a restored relationship. Maybe it's healing. Whatever that is. Imagine that moment when it finally happened. That's happening for them this morning. And so, you know, and so as we consider this, we're going to consider a couple of different questions as we explore the end of the first Advent and the birth of our current Advent. You know, typically when I walk through passages, we'll kind of go in order. This morning, we're going to go more thematic because uh, Anna's kind of story is almost happening simultaneously to Simeon. You know, she, says she, she walks in on, on Simeon when Simeon is blessing, so you kind of get this side-by-side theme. So we're going to kind of bounce back and forth between Anna and Simeon. Uh, more than I normally do, and there's, there's two questions we're going to ask as we do this. The first is, what does it mis- mean f- that the Messiah has finally come? What does that mean for the people? And secondly, how does he actually end up accomplishing the work that he's set out to do? So first, what does it mean that the Messiah has come? The f- first answer to that question is that it means that Israel's comfort has come. What does it mean that the Messiah has come? It means that Israel's comfort has has come. Israel is in need of great comfort for, they need to be consoled for all the reasons that that I've spoken of, right? Although their exile from the land is over, they still have foreign rulers ruling over them. David's line still hasn't taken the throne. And here it says in verse 25, it says, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Simeon was, was waiting for them to experience consolation, which is comfort. He's waiting for that great day of comfort, which is the full restoration, redemption of all that was promised back in Jeremiah to come true. And, and after you know, another 40 days of waiting, which you know, these first few verses of them fulfilling the law before they came to the temple, Jesus would have been about 40 days old when they finally came to the temple. So after another 40 days of, of waiting, they actually lay their eyes on them. You know, Simeon and, and Anna, it says that they're spending mo- most, much of their life in the temple. doesn't mean that they were just living there, hanging out, uh, but it actually they were devout, it says. They were spending their lives in prayer, meditating on the scriptures, which their scripture at the time would have been the Old Testament, right? And you can tell, actually, in some of the words that we have here that some of what they're meditating on is actually Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 60 are on their brains, They've been waiting for this moment. You know, Isaiah 40 begins with the great words, Comfort, comfort my people. Right, Consolation is coming for you. God will comfort his people. And Isaiah is speaking of that future day, and this is the day that Simeon and Anna are actually waiting for, and for them the day has dawned. Their waiting is over. You know, it says that, that Anna prayed night and day. Well, the night is, is done. The, the, the evening is gone. The sun has risen. Their wait is over. Their comfort has arrived. And what exactly does this comfort look like for them? Well, for one, one of the things this comfort means is that the, the, the people of God are made whole again, right? Their warfare is over. Simeon is, is likely from the tribe of Judah, which is the southern kingdom. If you remember, last, last week we talked about the, the, there's a split in the kingdom of the north and the south. Well, Simeon is likely from the tribe of Judah, or at least he's named after one of the tribes that was in Judah in the southern kingdom. And Anna, it tells us, is from the tribe of Asher, which is a tribe from the northern kingdom. And so one of the things that's being told to us in these details is that, listen, that thing that was divided, the north and the south, are gonna be reconstituted. They're gonna be remade in the birth of the Messiah. God's people are going to be made whole again, all united under Christ, their great peace and their comfort. And we actually see this hinted at in the storytelling of Luke here. You know, Luke, for the gospel writers, he was one of the more detailed gospel writers that there was. He gave us all sorts of details. And yet, when he speaks of Anna, he actually only gives us a few details. And this is very much on purpose. And actually, Luke often will do this. Well, He'll give us... uh, a very detailed story followed up by a a story with less details. And so every detail he gives us about Anna is on purpose and very important. You're gonna have to stick with me uh, on one of these things because one of the details he gives us is actually Anna's age, she is 84. And you know, if you read commentaries on this day and on this number, one of the things you learn is that uh, 84 is actually a very specific number that is speaking about the wholeness of people. You know, the, the two numbers that make up eighty-four is seven and twelve. Seven times twelve, if you know your times table, it makes up eighty-four. And right, seven is this number of completion, perfection, seven days of creation. Twelve obviously is always talking about the, the tribes of Israel, the, the people of Israel. And this number to the Israelite would have been very significant to say, listen, his people are perfected and complete in Christ. They're finding their wholeness and their completion now in the coming of Jesus. They have received their comfort in him and they're united once again as he is reconstituting Israel in himself. This is their great restoration and comfort. So the comfort of the Messiah coming reconstitutes the people of God and makes them whole again. That which was divided is now being brought into unity, uniting what once was broken, taking them out of a time of turmoil and war to a time of peace. The other thing the comfort does is it gives the widow a husband. You know, one image that Jesus picks up on in his time is the idea of, of the bride and the bridegroom, right? The, the church is the, the bride, and he is the great bridegroom who marries his church, his people. And it's easy for us to think this is just a New Testament idea, but this is actually an, a full Scripture idea. This is all over the, the Old Testament as well. This is an old idea. And one of the things we see is that God sees his relationship with his people— like a marriage, and like, in, in God's people have been widowed. They have lived a time without God, and now God is coming to redeem them. It says here that, that Anna was married right, seven years. You get this idea of seven days of creation here, but we've been long been widowed as we've been sent into the wilderness where we've been distanced from God. And like Anna has spent most of her life as a widow, but in the coming of Christ, right, Anna is redeemed, He is her great redeemer, like Boaz redeeming Ruth. So now Christ is the great redeemer of Anna the widow. God's people are widowed. They are alone. They are left without a redeemer no longer. He is the great bridegroom. The widow is comforted with a husband again. I mean, this echoes more of Isaiah 40 when it talks about their sin is pardoned. They're now married to righteousness. Lastly, the comfort of the Messiah brings about new creation, you know, Luke here, very much on purpose, gives us a series of, of three pairings of, of men and women. We have Elizabeth and Zechariah, we have Mary and Joseph, and now we have the pairing here in the story of, of Simeon and Anna, right, man and woman representing all humanity. All humanity is now being restored. There's something new happening as Jesus, the great Messiah, has come. All that was lost is being restored to God's people the Christ has come, the Messiah is here, and he is recreating his people, bringing about a new creation, redeeming all that was lost. The wait is over, right? The future promise that we talked about being fulfilled is now fulfilled very much in Jesus. Their hope has found its end in Christ. God's people are being restored through the Messiah. And as if this isn't good enough, big enough of a picture, we see the expanse of this comfort that's coming about in the Messiah. It's not, this, this comfort is not just for the nation of Israel, but we find that this comfort is actually for the whole world. The whole world uh, receives this comfort. Uh, we see this beginning here in verse 32, a, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. At the salvation, the redemption of Jerusalem is actually for the whole world. It isn't just this ethnic Israel situation, but God's people include every tribe, every tongue, every race, and it says it's a light. What what does light do? Well, it uncovers things that were previously hidden, right? If you've ever tried to navigate through your house in the dark, you know this reality very well as you step on a Lego, as you bump into the corner of a table, Uh, light reveals these things for us. The light to the nations reveals the Messiah to everyone. Which is what Isaiah prophesied would happen in Isaiah 60. He says, Arise, a light has come. Nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Right? God's comfort was never meant just for Israel. And with the coming of Christ, the long awaited Messiah, the light is coming to the world. This is one of the reasons why we light candles on an Advent. You kind of gain one every week. It's this idea of the light coming into the world, growing until the whole world is filled with His light, and He's making all creation whole again. No more are we divided as Jew and Gentile. Right? Galatians three twenty eight actually says it the best. It says this: There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. There again, we hear this promise talked about, the heirs of this promise. This is the Jeremiah 33 promise. This is the Isaiah, Isaiah promise. This is the great promise to Abraham. It's to all those who are united to Christ. And now in Christ, we are a new ethnic community. And first Peter tells us this, that we are a new race in Jesus. And this is the reality that Simeon is pointing to in this blessing. A truth that is not just a New Testament idea, but it's actually always been there. It isn't the comfort of Israel that's at stake with the coming of the Messiah, but the comfort, right, the consolation, the redemption of the entire world that's been born. I mean, this is why the wise men saw that great light in the sky and came. They weren't Israelites, but they recognized the great truth that the king of the world has come. He is our comfort. As the Heidelberg says, that he is our only comfort in life and in death. And in him, our life is not our own, but he has made us new in himself. We are remade, reborn. I mean, this is all very good news for us. This is why we call it the gospel. Right? Gospel means good news. This is the good news that Christ has come to redeem all things. The good news is that This is actually good news that you can't do it yourself. The work is too big for you. This work is entirely God's work. The promise that was going to be fulfilled is now fulfilled. The waiting is over. The Messiah has come and he is completing his work. Which leads to our second and last question. How? Right? This cool thing is happening great but how is he going to go about accomplishing this great work how does he do it and the answer to that question is this that God's comfort for the world comes to the discomfort of the Messiah right, God's comfort for the world comes to the discomfort of the Messiah we begin to pick this up here in this middle section in verse 33 and his father and his mother marveled at what was being said about him and Simeon blessed them and so Mary and Joseph, right, they're marveling at this initial prophecy that he's going to be a light to the world. That's amazing. You know, they knew something was different about Jesus, I hope, at this time, uh, being how that he was born. But they're still awe and awe they still don't really understand what does it mean that Jesus has come this way. And, uh, and as, as they're in that marveling state, whoa, wow, this is amazing. It's like when someone tells you something really cool about your kid. Your kid's the smartest student I've ever had. And they're like, great, but then they keep going, but they're, you know, this is like that moment where he says, uh, the marveling at what was said about them, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of Benjamin in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is less good sounding, isn't it? You know, if you asked any Israel at that time what they expected the Messiah to come and do, it would have been to come and claim that great throne to David, to kick out the Romans, to, to claim their land. At that time, they had largely forgotten about the global worldwide mission that God's people have always been called to. They still had an expectation for the Messiah, but they had forgotten Isaiah's words about the suffering Messiah. They didn't like that part of the prophecies. But the child, this Messiah, is appointed, it says here, for the fall and rising of many, and for a sign that's opposed. Jesus is gonna be opposed. Not everyone's gonna see and believe. Even here, Simeon is hinting at his future death and resurrection, the fall and the rising. It's an inverted order to what you might expect. Usually you have to rise before you can fall, but in Christ, things are inverted. He descends, right? He's descended from heaven, for one, to be born. And that's just the first part of his descent. He's going to descend again into the grave. He's going to fall all the way to the grave, into death. But that has to happen for him to be able to rise. Death comes before resurrection. And not just Jesus is implicated in this, but I think all people, but the people are are too. Those united to Christ will also fall before they rise. The Messiah coming looks different than it's expected. It's, It's not going to be an easy life. You know, the church is a people marked by opposition, by suffering. And Mary is told that a sword's going to pierce through her. Can you imagine seeing your son die the way that she's, about to, she's going to see her son die? I mean, it crushes her. But this is what must happen, it says, to reveal the hearts of humanity. Right? Through this, the light of Christ will be revealed to all. It's, it's in his death and resurrection that he will be exalted on high, right? It's through his dissension that he's actually exalted. His throne is bigger than Jerusalem. His redemption is bigger than an ethnic group. The good news of the great comfort of the Messiah comes actually through his pain and suffering. And in this, he takes our discomfort. He takes all our waiting, all our pain, all our sorrows on himself. And he does this on purpose. This is why he came, to do this. So we might experience his great comfort. As Paul says, he who was rich became poor, that we might become rich. So we could experience redemption that can only come from him. And this is why we can't accomplish this task on our own, because the comfort that we need can only come from Christ. And in this beautiful passage, we see that great wait for comfort. That great wait for redemption, for restoration, is over. Redemption is here, now. In Christ, we have our great comfort. As we look back at this moment of waiting, I think it has much to teach us about our own season of waiting. Because, you know, one of the dissonances of our time, the time between times, is that we still live in a world with sin. We hear this great news about comfort, but we still experience much discomfort in our lives. We're still waiting, aren't we? He has redeemed us from sin, but we still live in a world infested with sin. This is what we call the now and and not yet, where new creation has begun to grow in this world through Christ and His bride, the church, as she continues to establish new churches and proclaim the gospel of Christ, and as that's taking root in the world, but we still are part of a kingdom that's opposed. Our work is still opposed by the powers of this present world. Waiting is still hard for us. So what do we do in this time between times? How do we wait well? How do we hope well in the midst of living in that tension of the moment, which we all can feel? I think this is where the examples of Simeon and Anna are extremely helpful for us. What did their waiting look like? How did they keep hope? It says through prayer, through dedication to God. God. And as they worshiped God, they were filled with the Spirit of God, which sustained them. And in this, you get this sense that they did not take their eyes off their great hope. This is probably one of the hardest things for us. In the present Advent, where we're waiting for Christ to come. It's easy for us to take our eyes off the hope of Christ and, and, and get d- discouraged by all the things that are going wrong in the world. That all the things that are going wrong in our lives, all the things that are going wrong in our everyday circumstances... But here we find a people that kept their eyes on their hope. And they were able to because they knew the goodness of what they were waiting for. Which begs a question for us. Do you? Do you believe in the good news that Christ has promised that we are waiting for? Or do you struggle to believe? I think we all struggle to believe sometimes. This is where we pray. I believe, right? Help my unbelief. This is where not even our belief is not our own, but it's a gift of God that we pray and we ask for. We don't hold on to this hope by our own might, but as Christ's Spirit dwells in us, He helps us to hold on to this hope. And we're not just alone by ourselves, but He gives us a community to encourage one another to wait and to hope well in the midst of suffering, in the midst of hardship. Waiting is not easy. I think one of the hard parts for waiting for us is that we're so quick to distract ourselves any time we experience any kind of discomfort from waiting. You know, anytime we feel the discomfort, the pains of our world, we we get distracted from a TV screen, to a phone, to substances, to any time we feel the sense that this world is not the way it's supposed to be, that we are in that time of waiting, we can numb ourselves by these things. Because living in the time in between isn't easy. Living in a world filled with pain and suffering is hard. And so the only way we survive is we look to Christ, to the great comfort that we have in him, to the one who took all our sin, all our suffering, all our sorrows on himself on the cross. And if that indeed is true, then we can wait and hope. And then Christ becomes the only comfort we need. And so in this, we're called to keep our eyes on him, to stay awake, to keep watch. As psalm 130 is a great psalm that talks about it. It says, keep watch. Wait. Waiting is a sign of hope. You don't wait for something unless you have hope that, that your waiting will one day be over. Your wait will one day be over. Even if that's when you, your eyes close and you ascend and you're with God in eternity, your wait will one day be over and your, your faith will be made sight and one of the things I hate about this is I hate waiting. It's one of the reasons why I don't like going to the city. I really get angry in traffic. That's why I only like to drive to the city in the middle of the night so that way there's less traffic. I hate waiting. But it's in our waiting that we actually learn to trust our great Redeemer. It's in our waiting that we learn to test our faith. It's where our faith is tested and proved. It's, it's through those moments that it's refined, that our faith is refined. Through fire we are refined, which is hard. But we can endure, because we are not our own, but we belong to Christ. Christ who went before us into the furnace, Christ who himself was opposed and crushed, but through his crushing redeemed the world and redeems you and I and brings us to life. Now in him, we will still be opposed, but he is living inside us by the Spirit, encouraging you, strengthening you as you wait with hope. And this is what Advent, this season, is meant to do for us. It's meant to be a reminder of this great truth. The darkness of sin is real. It is in this world. We don't have to pretend like it's not. But our great hope in Christ is more real. That is the hope of Advent. And everything in this world is right geared to making you give up the fight. But as we look to Christ, who has gone before us, it will transform us to be a people who can wait and watch with all hope. May we be this kind of people, a long-suffering people, a people not easily dissuaded by the suffering in this world. May may our waiting grow our hope as we long for our great Redeemer to come again. Pray with me. Merciful, gracious Father in heaven, we give you thanks for our great hope. Help us to be a people who wait and watch and work for your coming. May we be a people who do not forget. And when we do, may we be a people who repent, who come back to you, and you show your light to us, and you encourage us by the power of living in community with you. Unite us to you and to your Son, and give us strength to endure by the power of your Spirit living inside of us. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.